Welcome to Low Light. The last episode of this first series has been split into two parts. This is the first part, so please, when you've finished, download the second and final part of the podcast in a few days' time when it's available. Low Light Episode 14 The Source As the time stumbles along darkly towards 6.30pm, the little houses up and down Hawthorne Road, along Alder Road, up Holly Road and around Rowan Drive, Oak Avenue, Maple Close and Poplar Lane, give up their residents who push on towards the meeting place. In the dark shadows along the roads and avenues and lanes and round the back of people's bins and in the gaps between their sheds and fences, under bushes and in the long grass of the common land, all across the lowering atmosphere of the neighbourhood, the other living beings wait and watch, ready for their cue for their item on the agenda. It's time, too, for Lance and Charity to be readying themselves for the transfer. Now it's dark. Eric will have vacated his house, and only Deirdre will be standing sentry there, so they can work unobserved. And now the police have left, much to Lance's relief, they can use the back passage and the track to transport the goods in small batches. No vehicles... Tanya was adamant for some reason. It would be much easier to load into a van, even though A to B is only a matter of a few hundred yards. But Charity doesn't appear. 6.30 comes and goes, and no sign of her. Lance sends messages that go not only unanswered, but unread. He calls her, and the phone rings out, dropping into her voicemail three times in a row. Lance's messages get increasingly pissy. When he flew, not too strong a word, into the pit in his front garden earlier, Lance twisted his foot. His left buttock is still painful from the attentions of the wasp. He curses. He looks at the lights in the windows of the theatre. If she's gone to that bloody meeting and left me to do this on my own, he mutters as he silences a call from Tanya and then limps off back down the ginnel and round the roadway to the theatre entrance. Hordes of neighbours, some of them wheezing as they try and breathe the tainted air, are converging on the little building, clutching various objects. Old black boxes with wires sticking out, teddy bears, someone's got a pony's harness, buckets and spades abound a go-kart, all sorts of things, and people are wearing odd items of clothing. There's a wizard's hat on a very tall man, and an old lady is wearing a paper-delicate pair of angel's wings, so dry and ready to crumble to dust, they almost look like they could have been plucked out of a display case in a museum. The meeting, it seems, is the ideal opportunity for the residents to show off the earthly gifts they received from last night's excavations. There's Ruby Hussein, standing at the open doorway in her uniform. She's trying to answer people's questions with her little bird voice. 
Ruby has been studying people as they pass her. She sees the things they bring with them. And when she talks to some of them, she realises that these are people reconnected with the stories they were told many years ago. Just like her and Gavin discussed. And if, as they thought, these stories helped suppress memories of trauma of some kind, then surely this means that these people are a step closer to remembering and reliving those harmful memories. And might that happen tonight, together as a congregation? She feels a sense of foreboding. Ruby tunes out the chatter around her. Caden's mother is digging through a black bin liner she's brought, trying to find something to show her. In the vicinity around the theatre premises, there are shufflings and scratchings. The odd grunt can be heard. Ruby allows her mind to sink into the night, reaches out her darker senses into the thickening air. She feels something approaching. She frowns, concentrates. The boar. Are you listening, officer? Yes, sorry. Ruby snaps back to the present. And then she hears it again, closer, and so do the other people still trying to get into the theatre. There's a palpable concern that ripples through the crowd and people press forward to get out of the night air. Take it easy, everyone. What was that noise? Just an animal. What kind of? Those at the front, please move inside. If you haven't got a seat, wait in the bar for now, just so we can get everyone in. But excuse me a moment. And Ruby steps away to contact her Sarge on the radio. As she's quietly updating him, she turns and notices Lance go past, pushing through the waiting people. There is some shoving and poking and a bit of bloody-mindedness which sees him through. He ignores the complaints. Ruby signs off on the radio and follows him. She turns at the door and peers into the shadows. Although she doesn't see one whole beast, she senses fur, claws, fangs, leathery skin, tails long and short, horns. The air is alive with movement too. Nothing she can fix with her eye, but she knows they're there. Checking for any more stragglers, she closes the door on the populous night and makes sure it's fastened tight. There's Lance. Ruby keeps him in her peripheral vision while assessing the situation inside. Who is he, this guy? Something seems familiar about him. She can see Sergeant Farrelly at the front, talking to Brandon, who stands on the stage, and she gives him a thumbs up when she catches his eye. He nods and whispers to Brandon, who, perturbed, seems to take a big, deep breath, as if bracing himself for a heroic act. The place is chock-a-block, packed full. Every seat is taken, and there are people sat on the high window sills at the side and stood at the back. Lance has to strain to see over people's heads. Gavin, standing against the wall at the front and scanning the auditorium, sees him, and then his eye is caught by a flutter as he clocks a glimpse of Ruby. They smile at each other. 
Ruby gestures to Lance with her eyes, questioning. Gavin nods slightly and mouths Lance, mimes having a cup of tea. Ruby understands and smiles. Gavin watches Lance and sees he's looking for someone. Lance's expression freezes and Gavin follows his gaze to Tanya, who is turned in her seat, her face a graven warning and her jaw set tightly. Gavin draws Ruby's gaze towards Tanya and they both raise their eyebrows in recognition. Lance scans the audience one last time and then retreats, Ruby melting into the darkness between the velvet curtains and the inside door and then re-emerging for a moment to give a meaningful nod of her head to Gavin. He grimaces but nods his agreement and crouches down to speak to Eric as promised. So the stage is set then. Well, I suppose it would be this being the theatre. Many of our neighbours are confused and upset. They're expecting answers or help of some kind and they've gathered in far greater numbers than the committee for Padma's celebration expected. Gavin, once again frustrated by Eric's prevarications, and with Shirley admonishing him for harassing the old man, stands up creakily and cranes his neck, but Ruby has gone. He sighs, smiles to himself, wondering if he'll see her later. Looks around and freezes as he meets Tanya's stare. He waves awkwardly, and Tanya turns back round with a look of irritation, wrapping herself tighter in her coat cape. Charity is still asleep. Her room is warm and cinnamon-sweet with the scent of soft words left behind on the scrap of paper she has in her hand. The door buzzer spikes into her dreams, though, and she jerks involuntarily, dislodging the little note and rising through the weed-ridden images to the surface of her mind. Lance stands below her window. All he sees is darkness there as he looks up. Teeth clenched, he sighs, staring into the foyer of her building. No helpful neighbours coming out this time. He considers pressing all of the entry bells, but thinks it wouldn't be good to attract attention at this particular point. The place is silent anyway. The whole area is utterly still. No people, no sounds of domesticity. They can't all be at the theatre, can they? It'd be a burglar's paradise, this. He should call Vince. But, again, not a good idea to bring attention tonight. He makes a decision and limps off along Alder towards the church. Charity is vaguely aware of the sound of steps receding along a gravelled surface. She blinks and looks at the clock. Slowly, she remembers. Her eyes widen as she realises she's late for Lance. She sees the piece of paper, picks it up. Among the soft currents in precious depths, sleep until love wakes you. Her heart drops slightly and her face is warm. That's sleeping beauty. What? But she sees the clock and hauls herself up and dressed. When she's standing, she remembers the night they spent in Eric's house. It doesn't feel real. It was painful more than anything. Stressful and difficult and nothing was achieved. 
Eric talked bollocks all night, Elle defended him, and Charity had taken herself off to the corner of the room with Deirdre and absented her mind as master and apprentice talked and laughed and seemed to create little worlds right there in the house. Charity felt left out, and she was glad. She clicks on the image of the mud-covered rag doll on her phone. She wants to go and get it. Lance said he'd put it in the washing machine, though. She tucks her phone away and sets off for Lightwood Hall. In the crypt, Lance sees the crack runs up the inside of the wall as well and halfway across the floor. It's wide enough to get his hand into. What is going on? He steps forward to peer into it. He can see little objects inside the dark crevice. Little plastic soldiers. Lots of them. The crack is full of them. He pokes his finger in and wiggles one out. He looks at it twists it around, remembers playing with them, feels a lethargy descend on him and starts to wonder if he could sneak away to the golden hammer for a few pints. Oh, he's tired and pissed off. Sad, really. He squints at the little green soldier figure, suddenly puts it back. No, what? What is he thinking? He glares at the crack and then leaves, switching the light off as he goes and squeezing through the hole in the fence at the back he made earlier in the day, sliding down the narrow gap between the fence and the wall of the ginnel until he finds the escape into the passage itself. He limps on into Eric's back garden, slipping awkwardly as he crosses the rotten wood walkway and worsening the pain in his ankle. Wretchedly, he begins the night's activities alone, muttering obscenities about his daughter. <coughs> the purr of a vehicle infiltrates a layer of the night. It approaches the church and noses into the car park there, tyres swishing over the smooth tarmac, reverses into the shadow of the wall. The man in the SUV sits in his seat and listens for the ring of Tanya's phone on his own handset. He clicks the call off when it gives him her annoying voicemail. He waits inside his gleaming cabin. The church is in darkness. Most of the windows in the houses in the street are in darkness. There's only the odd porch light on. No TV sounds. No music. No distant teen angst weaving through the audio sphere from some dirty bit of land or an untidy bedroom. No hum or tick of domestic activity. He gazes at the black line of the crack as it reaches the church wall. His eyes glitter a little. And then they snap to the light that flicks on in a small window at the base of the wall. The crypt. Without losing a hair's breadth of a moment, he's out of that car like a fly and silently moves around the back. He waits and watches from the shadows as Lance emerges, shuts the door and squeezes through a hole in the fence. He gestures to his driver, follow him, keep hidden, let him return or bring him back. 
When Lance twists his hip on that spongy mess of rotten walkway with the second load, there are two people lurking in the shadows watching him. Charity is watching the driver, watching Lance. She feels sick. Why didn't he wait for her? When she's alone again, she creeps through the undergrowth to the little room. About half of the little boxes have been taken. She sees the other piles of goods and frowns, Lance up to his old tricks. Not her concern. She'll remove the other half of Tanya's stock to safety, and that's how, looking for a box or a bag to put them in, she begins to move further into the dark, cobwebby bunker with only her phone light for company. She cuts the light and feels for the blankness of the place in her mind reaches her perception about beyond her physical form. There's no chiming sound here. She can hear the sound of her own body, breathing. Is it? Is it her breathing? Then she hears a distant shout, the meeting in the theatre. She reignites the torch and her eye catches a glimpse of white among... What is this? Oh, it's the base of the giant tree that has grown through the terrace. Careful not to trip, she moves in amongst the roots, reaches over and grabs a corner of a canvas bag, perfect for her use. It's got something in it, though, and it's stuck. She pulls and it comes free. What's in there, then? Oh, of course. Cash. Lots of it. Charity shakes her head. Must be what Lance was talking about. She ponders. She could steal it. She could go and find Elle and ask her to run away with her. Get Henry and all three of them run away from this disintegrating chaos. She could visit a psychologist or whoever it is that helps with these things and get her memory back and... Someone's coming. She freezes. No time to grab any of the stuff, she shuffles carefully around the tree to hide behind its bulk. A quick flash of her torch once on the other side, and she sees another door. She quietly pads over and extinguishes the light. Pushes the door. No. Runs her fingers over it and finds a metal loop flush to the surface. She works her slim finger underneath, lifts and pulls very slowly. It comes open easily. No light on the other side to give her away. Feels as though it's in good repair. The hinge is oiled. She slips through and waits quietly on the other side in complete darkness. Breathing. Count in for six. Hold for six. Out for six. Pitch black it is. Apart from the glints of gold she can see over the other side... It's the bottles, she realises, of Eric's green liquid. Dancing in delight at her presence, they are. Outside in the green tangle, there is movement. Not Lance, not the man or his driver, not any of the neighbours. Others. They have blood in them and a heartbeat. They live. They wait. 
The man walks easily into the crypt and stands, as Lance is bent awkwardly to accommodate his various injuries and is unpacking his bags. Lance places plastic-wrapped packs of small white boxes onto the table. The man leans slightly to look at what they are, breathes in and sighs noisily, turning to look at the wall. Lance's jaw clenches. Where have you been? he says peevishly. Oh, here and there, says the man. Lance whirls around, wrenching his leg. Oh, this crack is dramatic, isn't it? The diocese'll need a survey, and the building might need to be underpinned, what with the weight of God, heaven and all its angels to support. All that righteousness. Very dense, you see despite the pretensions to lightness and goodness. Tightly packed, bearing down on the earth. Actually, that's quite a nice image. Gives me comfort. Does it you, Mr Farhey? You are Lance Farhey. You must be. Anthony's useful idiot. He turns to look at Lance. Lance is genuinely baffled at that description of himself. The man is amused. Yes, you work for Tanya now. Where is Tanya? Who? It's important, I find her. The man steps closer and Lance moves as if to protect his little mound of illegal substances. Oh, the man gives a delighted chuckle. Oh, please, I don't mean to threaten your little enterprise. Just feel that I need to impress a little more urgently the need for your response to my question. Are you... It doesn't matter who I am. The man waits. Er, uh, Tanya, I... Well, she's at the theatre. But she'll have a phone on, you can just call her. It's only next door. No mystery. Don't know why you're acting all... The man does not have a ready response to this. He considers. Neither am I. I apologise for my rudeness. The man suddenly paces forward and sticks his hand out, millimetres from Lance's stomach. Lance's face is one big alarm, a peal of clanging bells visible in his wide eyes, and he pulls his body back, looks down, sees the hand, and has no choice but to take it. How do you do, Mr Farhey? I'm here to speak to Tanya. We have business. We had an appointment last night, but she didn't show up. I'm told she had an accident. Poor girl. But time is ticking, and, well, if she's up and about, then... Oh, you're... The man smiles indulgently. I'm... You're, uh... Yeah, right, okay. Well, in that case... And Lance steps aside to reveal his stash. Like a magician's assistant, he waves his hand across the piles of packages, presenting them, hoping for a gold star. Oh, no, I'm not... Uh, thank you, but I don't deal in pharmaceuticals. Prescription, are they? <laughs> Anthony's business, no doubt. No, Tanya and I have other things to discuss. Oh, OK, well, shall I uh, show you where the theatre is? Next door, you said. Yeah, 
I think I can find it if it's next door, Lance. Or are you insinuating that I am deficient of intellect? No, course not. Just trying to help. Being a good neighbour. I'm not your neighbour. No. And you don't work for Tanya anymore. I suggest you take this with you now when you go home and do whatever you like with it. But remove it from here now and don't come back. Don't approach Tanya Lawton-Jones for any reason. Do you understand? What? Not clear? Oh, well, my friend here will explain. We're all for people with specific needs. You may find his mode of communication suits you better. The man steps aside and reveals his driver standing behind him. The driver is wide. One assumes he has to turn slightly to gain entrance anywhere. His brow is low. He has a very heavy brow. Something you'd see on people dug up from past times. His eyes are tiny, hard little jewels. But it's the moist, fat lips that convince Lance that he doesn't actually want to stay. OK, no problem. I'll go. The man looks at him and gestures towards the drugs with his eyebrows. Lance looks at the driver again. Really? I think Tanya will be upset if they're not here in the morning. Won't she? No? OK. I'll move them somewhere safe. Not Eric's garden. Leave him alone as well. Oh, OK. And Lance, without really knowing why, gathers up the goods and repacks his bags. He stuffs packs in his pockets and unzips his jacket to stuff some in there, still having to carry two or three packs in his hands as he limps out, shuffling past the driver suspiciously. As Lance shuffles off, he tries to wrestle his phone out of his pocket and is attempting to stab something onto its screen when the driver plucks it from his hand and chucks it over the back fence. Lance is open-mouthed and blinks rapidly. Then he smiles obsequiously and slinks off, lopsided and bulky. <coughs> On the stage... Brandon, his big cheeks raging red in the warmth of the room, is flapping his arms to try and quiet the crowd. There are volunteers busying about. Sally, Sarah and some others finding seats for people, answering queries, shouting for help from co-workers. They point out the toilets and try to bring some order to the fray. There are far more people in there than there should be. Sally tries to get Brandon's attention from the floor of the auditorium. Someone barges into her. Ow! Are you all right? Asks Brandon, and he frowns at the barger. God, didn't see her. This meeting should be taking place in a bigger venue. Please take a seat. I haven't got one. Then stand at the back, Sally says, cutting. The upstart sniffs and pulls a face, lurches away, tripping over a handbag strap, and he flails inelegantly into Bethany's lap. She screeches, pushing and slapping at him. The man flounders on top of her, getting angry. He puts his hand out, trying to find something to lever his body upright. That's my tit, shouts Cat, with no embarrassment at all. Get off! 
I'm trying. Stop you wailing. There's nothing there to speak of anyway. Oi! Please, pleads Brandon. Sally watches with distaste. Kat starts to push the man back off and he laughs in her face, making kissing gestures at her. Come on, ladies, you love it. Sally marches forward and takes two handfuls of the man's clothes and hair and hauls him back off the woman. The sight of this is extraordinary, the strength she exhibits. It shocks the meeting to silence for a moment. The man is winded. Go on, Sally, you show him, someone shouts. Probably Mick. Quiet, she calls. She's furious, rabid. Spit flies from her mouth. Who the fuck do you think you are? Growls the man on the floor. Now I will have some order, tries Brandon. Sally stands her ground, rage in her frown. Everybody waits, mouths watering, it seems, for some real violence. But Sergeant Farrelly arrives next to Sally then, and she backs down, mortified, and retreats to the front of the stage. A number of people, including Lewis, he's a big strong man, is Lewis, stand up behind the sergeant, as if to lend support. The man, now upright again, tries a smile. Officer, <laughs> sorry about that. Just a bit of fun, you know. <laughs> what are you lot staring at? Officer, look, you've got vigilantes on your hands here. <laughs> Have we got a couple of gays? A washed-up prosy? Uh, the kiddie fiddler in the corner? He jerks his chin in Eric's direction. I think it might be a good idea for you to sit down, sir. Oh, do you? <laughs> I don't, says the man, swaying. It's not impossible that he's a bit drunk. Eric seems to shrink down slightly, collapse into himself, and his head droops. Shirley stood next to him, appalled at these words, whispers to him and puts her hand on his arm, comforting. Take a seat and keep your thoughts about other people to yourself, or go home, sir. Or are you after a night in the cells? The man looks up at him and notices the other neighbours standing. Lewis's eyes blazing, Gavin with his big frown. Brandon has his hands on his hips too. The man's eyes drop and his defiant smile melts then. Oh, what does it matter? I haven't got any life now anyway. Oh, diddums! says Cat unsympathetically. Cat! shouts Shirley. This! he croaks as he holds up a small squashy football. It's a keyring. This is the end of it. There's no point in trying anymore. <laughs> Three years sober I was before last night. <laughs> Gone! And in its place, my brain has turned to mush with stuff... Stuff. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But it fucking hurts. Another one? Surely this is proof enough of what Eric and Padma did. It's outrageous. They've ruined people's lives. Cat, don't. No, Cat, don't, says Gavin. The sergeant ignores the interjections, 
if you can just take a seat, sir. If everyone can sit down, I think it's because of Padma. What? asks Lewis, dangerously. Her death has brought back people's memories. Her and Eric helped suppress people's memories. What are you saying? All those stories people were told when they were little. They did it to stop kids reporting abuse. There's a gasp and muttering begins. How do you know about that? asks Bethany. No! Eric is trying to stand up, but Shirley, who is trying not to cry, physically pushes him back down. Cat, shut up or you'll cause a riot! Oh, God! Brandon is looking worried now. The sergeant turns to look at Shirley patiently and sees Brandon. He tries to reassure him with the art of mime. Sarge! calls Ruby from the back. Can you come here, please? Well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? Simon, stop showing me up and sit down, calls Caden's mother, who is marching down the aisle with two cups of coffee. She hands them to a beetroot-faced Caden and collars her husband. Sorry, officer. Sorry, everyone. He's a bit overwrought. I've got a seat here. Stop your troublemaking or you'll not have a bed tonight. Here, sit. Lewis surges forward in Sergeant Farrelly's wake and gets his big pointed finger in Simon's face. You don't make those accusations. You do not. He turns to Cat and you keep your idiotic theories to yourself. They're a couple of pedos. Simon sneers. He looks like he wants Lewis to punch him in the face. Which he does. Oof! Oh! Lewis? Yes! Shit! Shut your dirty mouth! Hisses Lewis, leaning over menacingly, rubbing his knuckles. There's a mass intake of breath, and then a pause as everyone computes what has just happened. Brandon repositions his hands on his hips and sticks his chin out. Okay, here we go. Can everyone please sit down? Sarah, could you get the first aid kit, please? Now, I don't want any more violence. Lewis, apologise to Simon. The police are outside and I think he'll be within his rights to complain about what you've done. I mean, we're supposed to be friends and neighbours here. This isn't right. Simon, whose nose is streaming with blood, grunts and tries to stand again. Lewis shifts his weight towards him slightly, as he does, and the man cowers back down. Lewis, come and sit down. Thank you, Sarah. Lewis? Lewis rejects his seat, instead choosing to stand next to Gavin. They're like a couple of nightclub bouncers, honestly. Brandon looks at both of them askance. Right. Everyone, please, can I have your attention so we can start the meeting? Please? I know emotions are running high with everything that's been going on. Right. Thank you. Now, can I ask the committee to join me on stage? We can make a start then. The agenda is... uh, Where is the agenda? There should be... The white light of a projector lights the back wall of the stage and the agenda appears. Thank you. Right. Okay. Item one. Venues. There is murmuring among the assembled citizens. Sarah tuts. Shh! They quieten. Tanya. Tanya! 
Oh, there you are. Would you like to join us on stage? The murmurs rise. Please! I'm not sure people want to hear from me, Brandon. Brandon looks confused. I think people want to discuss their gifts. She says it as if there's a nasty taste in her mouth. I think they do, says Shirley. Tanya's right. And Tanya gives a begrudging nod in Shirley's direction. Is that a good idea, Eric? Gavin leans down to Eric. No! Uh, I don't think that's a good idea. Shirley glares at Gavin and Tanya gives him a withering look. We haven't got that long and there's a lot to get through, isn't there, Brandon? It's quite important though, Gavin, wouldn't you agree? Shouts Cat condescendingly. There are murmurs of assent. That's fine, says Brandon, gesturing for calm. We can put it in any other business at the end. No! Look! I mean... It's the tall man. He's holding his wizard hat aloft. I mean, it's it's so confusing. People are nodding and some pat the man, trying to comfort him. The audience looks at Brandon beseechingly. It's like they want some kind of miracle. Brandon blinks, turns to his fellow committee members, who shrug. Sally's quiet. She's gripping the edge of her plastic seat and has locked her elbows in place, her head down. Brandon notices. Sarah does and leans forward. You okay, Sally? Sally shakes her head. Sarah looks back at Brandon. The murmurs seeg into whispers and back into murmurs until a woman stands up a few rows from the front. I... I don't want this. It was left for me in my garden, but it's not mine. It was my daughter's, but she, uh, she died last year and I, uh... And she starts to cry. She topped herself, Cat whispers to Bethany. Shut up, Cat, says Shirley with a sour look on her face, eyes brimming with tears. What do you know? It's only the truth. I know we don't like the truth in this place, but it is. The atmosphere has turned sour. People begin to stare at each other curiously to begin with. And then, as their resentment seems to build from nowhere, they swallow and their faces become agitated as a bitterness thickens in their throats. Their memories, little black beasts that they are, Slimy, hairy, scaled, a multitude of forms they take. They elbow their way back into battered minds and set up shop. They sit there now, pleased with themselves, with folded arms and their dark jaws set. Implacable. Those unaffected try and provide comfort. What's wrong? they ask. It's okay, they say. Show me what's upsetting you. So the wretched, damaged neighbours begin to hold up their finds from their gardens, as if exhibiting them, one by one, telling their neighbours what their relevance is, or speculating because they don't know. And then there are overlapping stories and reminiscences, and Gavin watches Eric as he listens 
and shakes his head, muttering to himself and asking weakly if Elle is there yet. No, she's not and neither is Charity. You need to do something, Eric, says Gavin. What do you expect me to do, lad? I don't know. Maybe just try and explain to everyone why they're feeling like this. All right, everyone, if we can try and keep calm. Brandon frowns again at Sally, who is being hugged now by Sarah. Eric, I didn't do this. It's the green. I think I think it might be too late. I thought we'd have more time. What? Oh, God, where's Charity? Where's Elle? Gavin gets his phone out and tries calling. Now the murmuring and whispering and talking is joined by a faint moaning and quiet sobbing sounds, and even those with no nasty memories to speak of begin to get agitated and cast about for something or someone to blame. The volume rises among those at the back of the auditorium, and a few of them stand and look about as if trying to locate someone, and then, where's that girl that's living at the big house? Was it her they wanted for Padma's murder? Eric turns, watery-eyed and mouth-gaping. Gavin gabbles a message into Charity's answer phone as quietly and urgently as he can. You leave Elle alone. She didn't do anything wrong. Shirl, have you got Elle's number? Gavin says, but Shirley just looks at him sadly through wet eyes. If anyone's to blame about people getting upset, it's the person that murdered our Padma, isn't it? I thought it was Charity, puts in Caden, trying to lean away from his distressed parents. You leave Charity alone. She's a victim, says Sally firmly, her eyes ablaze once again. You've changed your tune, mutters Gavin, and he catches Lewis's eye, and they both splutter a laugh involuntarily, like a couple of children, before being silenced by the wrath of Sarah's serious look. Gavin scans the audience again looking for Ruby and sees that the sergeant has re-entered the room. He's taken his hat off and is in earnest conversation with someone. That's not the behaviour of a police officer on duty. That's the behaviour of someone affected by Eric and Padma's stories. Gavin does a quick tally in his head. There's him, Eric, Cat, Sarah and Lewis... Brandon, it looks like, Caden, Ruby, of course, and probably one, two, three, maybe six or seven others. That's what, about 10% of the assembled company that aren't being tortured by debilitating memories. Then he hears a strange sound from outside, a shriek almost, and at the same time his phone vibrates. He pulls it awkwardly from his pocket, hoping it's charity. He sees a message from Ruby. I think the Mims are planning an attack. I think the boar is in Eric's garden again. Gavin's mouth gapes. He instinctively looks towards Eric, who looks at him guiltily. Is it charity? Or L? No, it's not. It's your little friends coming to pay us a visit, Eric. Eric looks at Gavin wildly and grasps his arm. The boar, he whispers. 
and Eric seems to slump down in something like relief. Shit! Gavin runs his fingers through his hair, turning about, and again sees Lewis, who frowns at him. What is it? Gavin looks down as his phone judders again. Shut any other doors and windows! Shut all the doors and windows. He shows Lewis his phone. Why? The boar is outside. Right. Okay, but why the windows? I haven't got time to explain. It's the... Oh, God, it's the stories. Lewis looks at him as if he's mad, which is not surprising. Can you just hurry? Okay. Kat turns from her conversation as she sees Gavin on the move. He knows what I'm talking about, insists Kat, pointing at him. He'll back me up. No, Kat, not now. We've got to shut the... You've got to tell the truth about what they've done or how will we ever fix it? Kat is trying to get out from her row, but people have begun sinking down in their seats and there's a kind of wailing happening now. People are writhing about as if in physical pain. The place has turned into a snake pit. The temperature has risen since the doors have been closed and the heat has people removing their coats and scarves and shoes. Honestly, I can see at least two pairs kicked off. Someone's waving their discarded clothing about like a flag. People have begun discarding their gifts as well, but then they're picking them up again indecisively. Some are chucking stuff off the balcony, trying to rid themselves of bad feelings, no doubt, and then running down the stairs to get their things back. The people below, pelted by these items, some of which are quite substantial, is a roller skate that just misses Mick's head. Look, oh, they start to complain. The volume rises. Resentment grows. People are wanting their scapegoat. They are demanding it. And then, tell us a story, Eric. It's Sally. She's walked to the edge of the stage. Yes, tell us a story. It's the old woman with the angel's wings. No, says Gavin as he goes towards the side exit of the theatre. He turns back to send his voice over to Eric. No, Eric. Eric looks at him from under his eyebrows. It might be the only way, Gavin. No, done enough damage, he hisses. Lewis is behind him and hears this. He waits. Gavin looks round. Windows! What do you mean, damage? Please, Lewis. Yes, tell us a story, says Shirley. Gavin, stop interfering. And she bends down to help Eric get on the stage. No! He looks round, finds Kat and gestures for her to come and stop Eric. But, oh, it's not looking good, because the idea of a story now is taking hold among the afflicted, and more people start asking and pleading, Can we have a story? And we want a story, and why can't we have a story? And, oh, dear. Cat, though, is like a superhero now she's got a clearly defined task that requires a bit of lip and some muscle. She wrestles with her sister and pushes Eric back down, eventually sitting on him bodily. The poor man flails under her, complaining, not surprisingly. Shirley tries to pull her off, but she bites her. Cat is not going to give up. Brandon is utterly appalled. 
Gavin is slightly appalled himself, but grateful, and hauls Lewis with him through the side door and on to check the toilets. Then, once alone inside the quiet of the plain little passage, in front of the exit door itself, which, to his relief, is secure, Gavin stops to think. My God. Okay. Mims first. An attack. Shit. What does she mean? Maybe she's joking. Or exaggerating. Oh, God. Gavin can't help himself. He dares to peer outside and pushes the bar to open the door. It swings open slowly. The air outside feels like syrup and tastes like there's a metallic flavour to it. He pulls a face as he perceives it on his tongue. There's the chiming. Oh no, he grabs the door again to close it, but it's swung all the way open and is stuck on some mechanical hitch thing. He fiddles with the mechanism and as he's doing that, he sees them coming. Shadows emerging from the ground, little dark beings pulling themselves out of crevices and climbing down from trees, scuttling along, massing along the road outside. Some of them are on the parked cars, stopping to scratch and preen themselves. Gavin rattles the metal thing. It's stiff. Needs oil in this, he mutters, looking around wildly. Something swoops over his head. He freezes tries to track it as it flies away, circles and returns. The bats! He jiggles and rattles and wrenches and ducks successfully at the second fly-past. He looks up to judge the third and sees... It's Charity, clutching two bottles of the green liquid and swinging a canvas bag on her shoulder as she rounds the building towards him. Oh, thank you! The mims seem to part respectfully to let her through, but they can't help straining to sniff and try and touch her. She doesn't notice, or doesn't care, one or the other. Gavin checks in with the bat's flight path. This time it's on a collision course. He whimpers and rattles the door catch, trying to weave on the spot to avoid the bat, but it's no use, it's closing in. Charity forges onwards, and in her wake there's a draught and a white flash above as a split second before impact, the bat is relieved of its conscious life by Owl, swooping, whooping and winking at Gavin. He laughs, exhilarated. Charity arrives at the door, gives a flick to the door mechanism and pushes Gavin inside, pulling the door behind her. They stop, still, listening to thuds as various winged beasts hit the closed door. Scratching starts up at the base, and snuffling can be heard. Snuffling and, in the distance, the chatter of monkeys and the cry of a wild boar. Gavin and Charity regard each other. Lively out there? Mmm. The noise from within the theatre rises like the tide. Things going well here? Mmm, a bit feisty, I'd say. Probably a bit unnecessary, really. At the stone gateway of the theatre, Ruby is standing quietly. She's doing that thing again where she makes herself almost invisible. She's so quiet in herself, she exists as part of the environment. She could almost be a mim herself. Now there's a thought. But if we watch her for a moment, 
we can see that her police officer's brain is still working away. She watches the receding figure of Lance as he lurches off down Alder and understands that he is loaded up with a cargo of some kind. She scribbles a report in her notebook. She puts it away then, all her movements smooth and quiet. She keeps her heartbeat steady, her breathing regular, and her mind cleared of clutter and worry and tension. She scans the ground as small mammals wander around in front of her. She holds her nerve as the beasts of the air fly inches past her head, avoiding the temptation to duck or flinch, and begins to move slowly and steadily around the theatre to check the doors and windows are closed. Inside the little exit passage, Lewis bursts back through the door leading from the toilets. All secure at the other side. Oh, hi, Charity. Um, I wouldn't go in there just now. There comes a quiet yet rapid knocking on the fire exit door. They all look at each other. Honestly, it's like the famous five, this. Uh, hello? asks Gavin. It's me, Gavin. The three of them release their breath and Gavin opens up. Ruby picks a squirrel carefully from her coat, sets it free in the direction of the hedge, sidles in and nods to the others. Charity, Mr Rodriguez? Officer, are there more police on their way? Yes, there will be, although there's another incident in the city centre so we might have to wait a short while. Best we keep everyone inside until they arrive. Gavin looks at Ruby with a pained expression. Right... Is everything okay in there? I asked Sergeant Farrelly to update everyone. I think the sergeant might not be, um, very well. Oh, right, okay. I'd best do it then. Shall we? Ruby is ready to lead them back into the auditorium. No, wait. Also, people are demanding stories from Eric, says Gavin, and he listens. Right... Ruby and Gavin exchange meaningful looks. Are you able to help? Ruby asks Charity. Is there something happening here that I'm not understanding? Says Lewis, folding his arms. Charity looks defeated. She shakes her head. I'm sorry. I think maybe it's not me after all. Not you what? Asks Lewis. Padma's apprentice. Maybe it's not me. I couldn't do it. I couldn't make anything happen when I tried. You drew your doll, says Gavin, consolingly. He looks at Lewis. She made an image appear, like at Padma's house, except it was an image in the air, kind of. The noise is rising again. Okay, I don't think we've got time for this. And Elle isn't here either. Not yet. She's working on something, so... Fingers crossed. Okay. Well, I'll have to go in and help. Yeah, let's go this way. Less likely we'll get pelted with artefacts from the Dark Earth. Gavin leads them hurriedly back to the safety of the foyer so that they can enter from the back of the room, and once there, they pause for a moment, listening. There's just one voice coming from the auditorium. They look at each other in hope. It sounds like Sarah has taken control. 
Gavin raises his eyebrows and leads them stealthily in. The scene inside is like a recycling dump. Clothing, bags, coffee cups, litter, children's toys and other odd objects strewn about the place. The air has a rosy quality. Red fibres from the velvet pile on the chairs, the nylon carpet and the flock wallpaper. Dust from shelves and under chairs has been disturbed and released into the air and it's making a fibrous carmine soup, it seems. Yes, things have slowed down. The heat and closeness of the air has brought a heaviness to people's minds and bodies. Eric is standing now with his back to the wall next to his seat, sweating and breathing heavily. In front of him stands Cat, fending people off with Sally's umbrella. It looks like Eric isn't trying to resist, and he seems frightened of the people trying to reach him. He's been pulling at his frayed shirt collar and his clothing is all rooked up. His eyebrows twitch. At the back of the auditorium, Gavin, Ruby, Lewis and Charity wipe their faces of sweat and pull hair away from their necks where it sticks as they watch Sarah bringing the audience under control. Ruby looks for the sergeant and finds him sat on the floor in the aisle, leaning against someone's knee, rocking. She rushes down to him and takes hold of his shoulder. He looks at her as if he doesn't know her. In fact, a lot of people are gazing about themselves as if looking through a fog. Some chuckle slightly, others renew their frowning and take their heads into their hands. Even those who never heard Eric or Padma tell a story in their lives are struggling to breathe the thickening reddish air. Sarah's tremulous voice drifts through the air, though, bringing some focus to the madness. Hmm... Perhaps the cult is about to sprout. Go away, Caden's mother says to Ruby as she passes her, barely able to give voice to her own words. Leave us alone. Why did you take Padma away? The old woman in the angel's wings grasps Charity's sleeve. I didn't... I didn't... It wasn't me. I thought it was, but it wasn't. It was the memories buried in the track. Oh, I think I might have some of those chattering memories. They're trying to do harm, you know. I think they're trying to hurt me. And she stares quietly off into the distance. And there's the chiming. Well, it had to start sometime, didn't it? An old building like that. There's always going to be cracks and crevices and... Charity, there aren't any weird little windows or anything in this place, are there? You know, that would be open. We've closed all the doors, but... Well, there's the lantern. The what? You mean like Eric's room? There's one here. No, not like Eric's room. It's like a big fancy air vent in the roof above the stage. You can't close it. Shit. They look towards the stage, and as they try to focus past the bright stage lights, they realise that the red light in the room is intensifying. Those lights shouldn't be gelled. They're not. There's something else covering them. Insects! Ants! 
Red ants, to be precise. Bitey ones. The white projector light is now pink with them. There's a cloud of mosquitoes too, and don't tell Gavin, but I think that might be another bat. No owl in here to help him either. What are we going to do? asks Gavin weakly. Getting bitten by insects is better than being run through by a boar, says Charity. Breathe in slowly for my count of six, then hold the breath for six, and then breathe out for six. Sarah is making progress with her disciples, it seems. Is it yoga? I thought yoga was Friday. Bethany surfaces from her dream state. Drama workshop. Oh, I love this. You need to lie on the floor so your pelvic what's-it is in recline mode or something. A voice from the balcony drifts over the audience. Splat! shouts Mick inexplicably. You can stay seated or standing or lying down or whatever, but just concentrate on my voice. Please, I know it's hard, but this will help us all feel better, I'm sure. Now, focus. Sarah starts to scratch. The mosquitoes are biting. Brandon is in full itchy knickers mode and yelps. Sarah raises her arms. And breathe in. Two, three... Four, five, six, and hold. Two, three. The sound of coordinated breathing builds steadily. Eric has a slight look of disgust on his face, but Ruby is pleased. I still don't have an ETA for backup. I can't get any sense out of Sarge, and it's getting very warm in here. I think people might start passing out soon. Are you suggesting we send people outside to be eaten by beasts? Although inside, I suppose we're all going to be eaten alive by these things anyway. Gavin slaps at something on his face. We could get some water to pass round. If we remain calm, then the Mims will, says Charity. She passes the bottle of green juice she's just had a swig from to Gavin. Okay. Let's just see, says Charity and they all start to time their breathing along with Sarah's words. Five, six, good, again, ouch, sorry, okay, just accept the sounds you hear, feelings you have, there's nothing wrong with them, it's just the state of things. Ready? And breathe in, two, three. Ruby slides back out into the foyer. What is this? It looks like something's alive inside it. Lewis reaches for the bottle. It's good stuff, says Gavin. You know, there's only about 10% of us not affected by the MIMS. What are MIMS? I'll explain later. Where is Elle? asks Charity. At mine, says Gavin, wiping his mouth on his sleeve. Yours? Charity is amazed. Typing. I hope she gets here soon. We might not need her, says Ruby as she returns. It seems that Charity is right. The Mims are feeling just as floaty and relaxed as their humans. They're still wandering about and doing the things that they usually do, but there's no aggression or menace to their behaviour now. They're just waiting patiently for the neighbours to emerge from their hiding place. Ruby holds up her phone. She shows them a photograph of the crowd of beasts 
looking like they're waiting for their favourite band to come on stage. It's like a Disney film, says Lewis. Is that real? Outside, now? Ruby nods. I think we should evacuate while we can. Get everyone quietly home and lock the doors. The congregational feeling in here has been feeding people's emotions. And that must be like a magnet to the Mims. All the energy from so many people concentrated on... Well, concentrated on them, really. Okay, agreed, but... Gavin gestures to the zombie apocalypse happening around them. How? Sarah can get people out, says Lewis. If she's managed to get everyone doing this, he looks around. When we almost had a stampede in here five minutes ago, she can persuade people to leave quietly, I'm sure. Okay, but Charity, is there any aircon or anything? Gavin is wilting. No, but I can switch the stage lights off. That'll help. Hang on. Oh, but look. As Charity climbs the stage, there are two sets of eyes on that bag she's carrying. Tanya, still seated and trying to keep herself together through a haze of pain as her past claws at her, stares after her. Charity feels the weight of the stare and she swallows and turns. Then she notices Cat's gaze too. Now there's a triangle you wouldn't want to be in the middle of. But it's Ruby that takes centre stage, oblivious to the quiet drama resolving itself around her. She steps up and whispers to Sarah, who nods resolutely and switches to full take-back control mode. Where did you get that bottle, Charity? Have you been in my house again? Hello, something's rattled Eric's cage now, and Cat lets him move past, possibly hoping for a distraction so she can reclaim her booty. Uh, no, I took it with me last night, don't you remember? He looks at her. No. Do you? Is your memory coming back? Not yet, no, but I feel better, like a weight's lifting. Hmm, well, I need to tell you about the doll, don't I? No, Eric, calls Gavin from the back. Cat, can you stop him? Shh, Ruby glares at Gavin. Sorry, but he points vigorously and Ruby grabs Charity, leading her away from Eric's weasel words off stage left towards Tanya. Sarah, meanwhile, coaxes and encourages. Now, keep breathing to the pattern of six and walk calmly to the nearest exit. Leave your things, you can get them tomorrow. Why? asks the old lady with the angel's wings. I like the breathing. You'll be breathing in Mims soon, mutters Gavin. Pims? Oh, yes, please. Mims. Gavin sees an approaching column of ants and shudders. Then he ducks just as a bat zooms by. See, there's mad bats. <laughs> Your bats, you daft thing. I'm enjoying myself. This is better than the depression. People have begun to sway together like seaweed with the tide. They're not going anywhere. Eric starts to stumble towards Charity in front of the stage. 
It's important you listen to me, Charity. Sarah isn't having any of it. The pair of you, what have you done to our neighbourhood, to our husbands and friends and children? And breathe out. One, two. Ruby gets in front of Charity. Don't listen to him. What the fuck do you think you're doing? And Tanya's back in the room. She's swaying a little on her feet now, clearly a bit woozy, but her mind has fixed on the bag with her own company logo swinging on Charity's shoulder in front of her. She grabs it and peers inside, only for a second, but long enough. Tanya, we need to evacuate the theatre because everything's gone a bit crazy. If you're feeling okay, can you please help us? Charity slowly pulls the bag from Tanya's grip. Jemima, Jemima was sat in that big chair, wasn't she? She always watched the television with you when the men were in the next room. Tanya seems to wake up properly then, and Kat comes forward to pull Eric away and leans into Charity as she does so. That's mine. I want it back. Charity holds the bag tighter but Tanya grabs her arm and pulls her away from Kat. She limps over to the side of the stage, Charity in tow, and smashes the fire alarm. No! Calls Brandon as if he's falling down a well. Oh no! The firemen will come! Since when has that ever been a bad thing? Come on, Charity! And she takes them both out of the side door to the back of the theatre. The fire alarm siren wails, and now people wake up and begin to stumble from the theatre, forming a herd to rival the Mims. Sarah drops her hands. I don't know why I bother. You have been listening to Low Light. Written, performed and produced by Melanie Crawley for Crawley Voice Studio. Find out more at crawleyvoicestudio.com Thank you for listening. Thank you.